Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is the 1st of November. Um, I've been told, instructed to keep this short, so oh, we'll just jump right into it. Who, who do we got? What are we talking about this week? Who do we got indeed, Ricky? So we are about to be joined by Chase Aboudin. If you know who he is, you know that this is a big deal. If you don't know who he is, pause right here, go look him up on the internet, and then come back and play the rest of the episode because this is a big deal. Uh, Chase Boudin was the district attorney of San Francisco from 2020 to 2022. Why is that important? He ran on a progressive prosecution uh, decarceration platform. He was one of the faces of this movement, which exists all across the country, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. But his rise to be elected on this very progressive criminal justice platform in 2019 to being recalled by California voters in 2022, I think is really emblematic of where that that movement, whether it's progressive prosecution or defund the police, where that movement seems to have gone over the past few years and the shift that we have seen in messaging, particularly on the Democratic side in, in the past few years. I think whether or not that shift is real or perceived, or what is narrative versus reality, I think we'll get into all of that with uh Chase when he comes on but his I think his perspective and experience as a prosecutor his life experience in terms of like what drives him to do the work that he does and has, has done and continues to do um, I'm just <laughs> I'm really excited to have him on I'm, I'm Ricky a little bit nervous <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I was I was mentioning when I was researching a little bit about and shame on me for not knowing more about his sort of uh personal accolades and and just a lot of the work that he's done to date but um that like i think this guy might be a hero of mine <laughs> didn't even really know it so um, really excited to uh to to get to chat with him um i think he's gonna bring obviously that that lived experience um that that is really unparalleled. So I can't wait to get into this one. Yeah. Before we bring him on, just a reminder, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Rookie, my pun for the week, my question for you, uh, is inspired by Chase in some ways. Why did the tree become a detective? Oh my goodness. No clue. He wanted to solve the root of the problem. And I think Chase is going to come on and talk a lot about solving the root causes of, of crime as, a, as opposed to trying to continue to bang our heads against the wall with our the criminal justice system that we've had for many years. Well, let's bring him on and hear what he has to say. All right, we are now 
Really excited to welcome Chesa Boudin onto the program. Chesa is the founding executive director of uh, Cal Berkeley's Criminal Law and Justice Center. Prior to that, he served as San Francisco's elected district attorney from 2020 until his recall in 2022, which we'll talk much about both of those things. Uh, during his time in office, uh, Chase implemented bold reforms to ensure that the criminal legal system delivered safety and justice for all San Franciscans. Those achievements included a significant expansion of the office's victim services division, the elimination of prosecutors' use of money bail, prosecuting police for excessive force, suing the manufacturers of ghost guns, and expanding diversion to address root causes of crime, which led to a historic reduction in incarceration in San Francisco. During his time in office, both violent and nonviolent crime fell by double digits. Prior to his election, uh, Chase clerked for two federal judges and worked for years as a deputy public defender in San Francisco. He is a graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School and attended Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. His biological parents spent a combined 62 years in prison, starting when he was a baby. His work has appeared or been profiled in the Yale Law Journal, the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, the New York Times, Washington Post, New Yorker, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, and now on A Gentleman's Disagreement. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I'm, I'm really glad, Brennan, to be here and uh, and that you saved the best for last in that introduction. I'm, I'm excited. And, you know, from here, uh, who knows? The sky's the limit. Well, that's, you know, for both of us, we hope so. <laughs> uh, but so that's your professional bio. But if if you were kind of telling people about yourself, the things that maybe wouldn't go into a professional bio, what else or how would you describe yourself to people? Oh, well, there's all kinds of different ways to frame, you know, the three dimensionality that, that, that we all try to try to exist in. Um, I, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father. I like to bake. I like to surf. I like to run. I used to do marathons and, um, you know, several hundred mile relay race team events. Um, love to travel, see the world. Um, you know, I could, could keep going, but a lot, a lot of interests and activities and, um, you know, in, in a big social milieu that I'm part of and, you know, friends and the people I like to go on adventures with. Sure. Uh, one of the defining characteristics, it feels like, of your biography, which you chose to incorporate in your professional biography, is the fact that your parents spent you know, 62 years uh, incarcerated from the time when you, when you were a baby. Can you talk a little bit about how that particular experience is and any other experiences led you into this path of becoming a public first public defender and then a progressive prosecutor? Sure. I mean, you know, I was 14 months old when my parents left me at the babysitter and headed off to participate in an uh, armed robbery of an armored car. Um, 1981, it was Nyack, New York. And even though my parents were not personally armed and weren't even at the scene of the robbery, um, when three people got killed, two police officers, a security guard, you know, they were involved, knowingly involved in the commission of a serious felony. And under New York state law, that made them guilty of felony murder. So they were both uh, sentenced to very long prison terms. My mom received a 20 year to life sentence. My father, a 75 year to life sentence. And even though I don't remember their arrest or the judge handing down those particular sentences, my earliest memories are waiting in line outside jails and prisons to go through metal detectors, to go through steel gates, just to be able to give my parents a hug. And way before I thought about politics or had heard the term mass incarceration, way before I even really understood the history of racism in this country, 
I started to notice that the lines at the metal detectors going into those prisons were mostly black and brown women and children. And I started thinking about what was different about me. I started thinking about why I had this complicated family dynamic with parents in prison who were my biological parents and then parents who were raising me at home who were the biological parents of my brothers. Um, and over the years, I, I just, you know, actually decades of visiting my parents in prison, I started thinking more and more and doing more and more research and becoming more and more interested personally as well as professionally in the failure of America's system of so-called justice to do justice, uh, in the failure to rehabilitate people who've committed crimes, to meaningfully support or heal victims of crime, the failure to hold people accountable in ways that are equitable. Um, we know that we have two systems of justice, one for the wealthy and the well-connected, and another one for everybody else. Um, and along the way, we've invested so many billions, now trillions of dollars in mass incarceration that we've actually starved our communities of the kinds of things we know we need to be safe, of investments in healthcare, of education, housing, uh, mental health services, drug treatment. And so it's this really horrific downward spiral. Um, and it's, it's that recognition from lived experience that really led me to go to law school, to become a public defender, and ultimately to run for district attorney. So that's maybe a medium-length version of why I included in my bio. Very well said, yeah. Yeah, one of, one of the things that you brought up, and I think you've commented on in the past that really stood out to me, were the disparities in the prison sentences or the lengths of the terms between your mother and your father. Um, ostensibly committing the same exact crime, but very, very different uh, prison terms. And I, I think you've commented on the, in the past in sort of the arbitrary nature of the uh, sort of the, the quote unquote justice in this case. I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. Sure. I mean, look, there's a lot of ways we could talk about my parents' case or, or any case. You can come at it from different angles, right? You can take the lens of the person who was harmed or their family members. Um, in the case of a, of a homicide, you could come at it from the lens of the family of the of the defendant or the defendant themselves. You could come at it from the lens, um, you know, of sort of neutral, detached, you know, overall societal interests. Um, it's hard for me, obviously, to talk in a totally neutral or detached way about my parents' case because they are my parents. And, and despite all their mistakes, I did and do love them. But you know, I think at a high level, the point that I was trying to make, you know, that you're asking about is my parents did exactly the same thing. Their role in the crime was exactly the same. The only difference was my dad was driving the getaway car and my mom was the passenger in the getaway car. Neither one of them was armed. Neither one of them was at the scene of the robbery itself. Neither one of them directly fired a gun or touched a gun during the commission of the crime. And yet, at the end of the day, my father received a 75-year minimum sentence, and my mother received a 20-year minimum sentence. So it's one of so many examples. I'll give you another hypothetical example just to illustrate that this is not a one-off. Let's, let's say, I'm just going to use you guys as examples. Let's say, you know, you guys have been friends your whole lives. Brendan and Ricky, you guys have been friends. Um, you know, let's just say, I'm making this up, but let's just say Brendan's 18th birthday was a month before Ricky's 18th birthday. And to celebrate Brendan's 18th, 18th birthday, you guys, I see you nodding. So I, maybe I guessed correctly. I could just see through Zoom which one of you is older. Just that month of difference, right? <laughs> yeah, you guys were like best friends in high school, right? You're your buddies. You're going out. Politics aside, like you got to celebrate Brendan's 18th birthday. You got to do something big. And so you're like thinking about what to do, what to do. And 
you know, I'm assuming and hoping that this is where the the, the hypothetical goes way off course. But, you know, you decide that you need some money to celebrate. And so you're going to you're going to commit a robbery. You're going to just snatch somebody's purse, you know, their cell phone, get a little cash so you can go out and party. All right. Well, guess what? It goes wrong. Somebody gets really badly hurt. And, you know, Brendan just turned 18 yesterday. Right. You're celebrating his birthday. It's, it's midnight, whatever you're celebrating. He's 18. Ricky's still 17. Now, maybe that Ricky's the one who actually does the rip and run. Ricky's the one who actually has the gun or the knife, right? But he's a juvenile. So let's say that person gets killed in that robbery. Let's say the gun goes off accidentally that Ricky has, shoots and kills the person. Brendan can get prosecuted for murder as an adult, even though he didn't even hold the gun. Meanwhile, Ricky, who's a juvenile, is probably, depending on the state you're in, probably going to see a maximum of seven years in, in a different, totally different facility. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to prosecute juveniles as adults. I mean, uh, to, to prosecute juveniles as juveniles and to have that differentiation. I want to be clear. I think the law in any area you look, criminal or otherwise, has arbitrary lines. Why is it that when you're 17 and 364 days, you can't vote? You can't buy cigarettes. You can't sign up for the military. Why is it when you're 20 and 364 days, you can't go into the bar? You can't get tickets to concert, whatever it is. We have all of these... How old do you have to be to start kindergarten in public school? There's a million places where we draw arbitrary lines in the law. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying it's important to be aware of how arbitrary the, the, the punishments that we impose are in a system that we call just, in a system that our Constitution requires to be equitable. It's not equitable. We have very, very serious uh, discrepancies in how we mete out justice. And we know that a lot of them have to do with the color of your skin or the quality of lawyer that you can hire or the zip code that you happen to live in. Um, that's not justice, and we need to do better. So you're realizing all of these things as throughout your life and as your career as a public defender, and then 2018, 2019 comes around, there's a somewhat historic opportunity where the district attorney of uh, San Francisco, the office becomes open. How did you, or did you, I guess, know that the electorate was ready for what you just said? Oh, I don't know that I knew the electorate was ready. I think um, I viewed the decision to run not as something I was doing because I knew I was going to win. I knew it was going to be a long shot, uh, not only because of the particular politics that, that I was very explicitly and vocally uh, arguing for on the campaign trail, but because of my background, uh, because of some of the structural things. I was the last candidate of four to get in the race. The others all, all had a lot of money in the bank. They all had already locked up lots of endorsements and built campaign teams. So I knew when I decided to formally file my paperwork in January of 2019, it was going to be a long shot. But you, you win. And I guess, like, what did that tell you? And it was ended up being a very close race. I think you won by less than 3,000 votes. And so what did that tell you, the fact that despite the long odds, you, you did win? Did you feel some sort of a, a mandate going forward? Well, you know, I mean, it was, as you say, it was a narrow victory. We we won for San Francisco for a little electoral context. San Francisco uses what's called uh, rank choice voting. We love uh, rank choice voting here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it's really interesting. It's different. It's much more efficient. Um, there's a lot of advantages to it. Um, you don't have to do a runoff race. You give people who want to vote for maybe a candidate who they know isn't going to win the ability to vote their preference and still have their vote get counted. So a lot of good good things about ranked choice voting. Um, 
you know, for folks who aren't familiar, basically what it means is in a race like the one where I was elected district attorney, there's four candidates. Um, if you want as a voter, you can put all four in the order you want, first, second, third, fourth, right? And if the first choice candidate you vote for happens to get the lowest number of votes, they get eliminated. Instead of just throwing out your ballot, which is what we do in federal elections, we, we in ranked choice, we take your ballot and we look at who you put second. And then your vote goes to them. And if they get eliminated, it goes to who you put third, right? And so on down the line. Um, in in 2019, if you include people who put me as their second and their third choice, right? Not just first choice votes, second and third as well. I only had 42% of the total turnout. But that was enough to win. That was enough to win. Um, because some votes dropped off because it was more than any other candidate had. Look, I did have the most first choice votes and I had the most votes after ranked choice, but it wasn't a, a broad, powerful mandate. It wasn't, um, you know, voters overwhelmingly elected with 70, 80% of the vote. Okay. Uh, maybe we would have, who knows if we do a runoff, then you get higher percentages, right? So, so that's also another dynamic here, but certainly going into office, I felt like, I had to build a broader coalition. I had to do the work of reaching out to folks who hadn't supported me. Um, I had to make sure they knew I represented everybody in the city, not just the 42% that had elected me. Um, and I also knew that on the other side of the coin, that I had been very, very explicit and concrete about what I was going to do. This wasn't a campaign where I was, um, you know, you know, using vague, you know, abstract language about safety and justice for all, or where I was saying, you know, we've got to do more efficient government, or, you know, sort of the, the catchphrases, the buzzwords that so many politicians, you know, just just absolutely flood the zone with um, in ways that don't tell voters anything about what they're going to do. That's the safe way to campaign, right? Because then you don't make anybody angry. Right. You, you see what's popular and you use very generic language that's non-committal. You can't exactly finger in the air. Where are the winds blowing? And, you know, because that's your approach, you don't, you're not grounded in any principles or any specific values or policy vision. Once you take office, you do the same thing again. You put your finger in the air and, um, you know, you go with the wind. And, and, and it's very hard to hold you accountable because you haven't actually committed to anything concrete. You go to a lot of uh, candidates' websites, you can't even tell what political party they're in. I mean, you can't tell anything about what their policy agenda is, right? It's, it's all about kind of high-level, generic, superficial branding with no substance or, or details. And there are good strategic reasons why political consultants tell candidates to do that. I wasn't interested in that advice. I was interested in running a campaign where we were very concrete, where I drew on my lifetime of personal and professional experience in the system to play an important role, win or lose the election, in educating the public about the failures of our justice system. And yeah. so we had an extremely detailed campaign website and this is, I'll just wrap up with this, Brent. I know you have a question, but, my, you know, the, the point I'm making is, yes, I, I did not have a huge overwhelming mandate in terms of the percentage of votes. But at the same time, I had been very, very specific and concrete with voters about what I was going to do. And I felt an obligation, to be honest, and to make a good faith effort to follow through on those promises. And this isn't just revisionist history. If anybody goes back and looks at, like, uh, Chase's campaign either literature or videos from 2019 like he he is exactly what he just said that he, he is looking into the camera and telling you these are the things i'm going to do so i think that's a a really important point is that you were elected and voters knew for better or for worse like what they were electing and and um you know the actually the website you mentioned that you know if you use like the Wayback machine or anything like that the 2019 campaign website is still there 
we have a whole series of very detailed policy position papers. None of the other candidates did that, right? I mean, we had them on bail and on uh, gun violence and on victim services. And, I mean, a, a whole laundry list, right, of really important specific subject areas where we said, here's our vision, here's our policy platform. And, um, you know, none of the other candidates in the DA race did that. So I wanted to do my best to follow through um, on those ideas that we promised voters we were going to deliver on. I'm really excited to dive into to some of the specific policies um, that, that you just mentioned. Maybe before we do, one of the things that I'm curious about is I, I think in a lot of ways, your race was is sort of a microcosm of just what's happening in the Democratic Party today, right? So obviously, you know, you, you had opponents who were endorsed by really establishment type of, uh, can, uh, you know, establishment type of endorsements, uh, both the sitting governor, both the state senators, um, and really like towing that like moderate line, which I think it's tough because for in de for Democrats in general, the idea of being soft on crime has always felt like this, you know, soft on crime in, in big old air quotes um, has, has been a sort of a, a, a drag on, on any campaign. I wondered like how, how, how did it sort of work for you as someone who's a member of the Democratic Party, but clearly a different branch than sort of the establishment that that kind of had a preferred candidate in that race? And either, you know, whether you felt support, any support or pressure to drop out or or how that kind of worked for you. Or pressure to drop out of what? Of, of the of the race. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about. Um, kind of a, 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 a loose connection to maybe, you know, 2016 when Bernie Sanders is running against Hillary Clinton, just not really getting the support of sort of the, the democratic machine, as you will. Obviously, San Francisco is a very liberal, liberal city, so they kind of have well, to make choices between Democrats, but. That's so that it's reputation, it turns out. Yes. Uh, yes. Tucker Carlson yes. loves to paint this picture of San Francisco as progressives run amok, but actually it's a pretty conservative place within the Democratic Party. And uh, certainly for sort of, you know, big urban areas within the Democratic Party, we we've basically never had a progressive mayor in a citywide you know, race. So um, we definitely have some progressives. But, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom is pretty mainstream Democratic Party. Um, Kamala Harris, you know, I mean, these are the folks who come out of San Francisco politics. They're not the far left. We're not talking about AOC. We're talking about Nancy Pelosi. Right. Um, so it, it is it is very much. Um, you know, mainstream corporate Democratic Party rather than far left fringe Democratic Party. But you're right, it's it's solidly Democrat. Um, we could talk more about that. I think uh, there's some interesting things about what happens in an all blue jurisdiction in terms of the sort of the, the diversity within the party is much greater than in purple jurisdictions. But um, I'd love to talk about that. But to your to your question, Ricky, um, I certainly never thought about dropping out in um, in 2019, I mean, we had a campaign that was an 11 month timeline and we were building momentum from day one and we were racking up endorsements. Um, you know, by the time I got in the race, pretty much the who's who of the Democratic establishment had already endorsed my main competitor. Um, you know, the governor, the lieutenant governor, both U.S. senators, the mayor, the majority of the board of supervisors, uh, ultimately the Democratic Party voted to endorse her. Uh, so, yeah, she had, you know, the 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 endorsements that any politician candidate would want, most of those before I was even in the race. Uh, so I knew that going in. 
we actually chipped away at her endorsements. A lot of people who had endorsed her then did a dual endorsement with us. A lot of them ultimately um, withdrew their endorsement from her and, and, and switched their support to us. Not the big name folks, but at the local level. Um, and so, no, we didn't think about uh, withdrawing. I, I knew that the National Democratic Party was always going to be more conservative than me on a lot of these issues in particular. Um, you know, growing up with, with my parents in prison, I knew that if, if my mom was going to get clemency, like in the 90s, I knew that it was more likely to happen under a Republican than under a Democrat. Um, and it's, it's ironic. It's, it's, it seems counterintuitive, right? Because Republicans are tough on crime. But the reality is uh, Republicans feel free to not be tough on crime in, in individual instances. You look at uh, the governors or the presidents who do the most sweeping pardons and grants of clemencies, they're Republicans. They're not Democrats, right? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying re Republicans have kind of successfully built this narrative for themselves and their party as being the party of public safety, uh, as being the party of, of, of tough on crime. Democrats, especially corporate Democrats, and mainstream, you know, national level Democrats run, they run scared uh, on this issue. And they do a terrible job messaging and owning the, the successes. Uh, often they're very disconnected from their own voters and they play right into the Republican strategy in a way that you got to give the Republicans credit. I mean, they've, they have had a very, very effective multi-decade uh, sort of uh, framing victory around safety issues. And, and safety is a key issue when, when voters go to the, the polls. Right. And Rick, Ricky and I were talking about this, like you have the Dukakis-Bush disaster of, of the the 88 election. And then what do you see in 94? The crime bill largely sponsored by now then Senator Biden under the Clinton administration. Like it's just the swing back of like, well, we, we know we can't be soft on crime. Otherwise, we're going to lose. Uh, but so talk kind of about like political and societal wins. You are elected in your sworn in beginning of 2020. And obviously, tragically, we have the George Floyd murder at, at the early, the first half of 2020. And hold on, hold on, Brent. I just want to interrupt for a second. You skipped over, you know, a unbelievably important, probably in terms of the macro impact, far more significant even than the murder of George Floyd, which was a, a seismic shift in American politics and consciousness. You skipped over the thing that happened months before George Floyd, George Floyd was murdered, which was the COVID-19 pandemic. That's two months after I take office. Yeah. So I just think about taking a new office, think about trying to run a bureaucracy, manage, hire, fix a broken system, build relationships with the, all the folks that didn't vote for me in that election and get to know people face to face, sit down, have lunch, go for walks. Two months in, all that gets shut off. And instead of trying to fix backlogs of cases or, you know, work with a broken system, all of a sudden we've got to do crisis management. And I just want to put that in context because as, as a newly elected first time office holder, that was, and it was months before George Floyd. Then you add the murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. You know, th this was arguably uh, the most uh, difficult and um, kind of volatile period that anybody could have started a, a career in, 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 you know, executive public office. Totally fair point. And, and I think might actually explain something that I wanted to get into later, but I, what I, where I was going with my question was that, like, you get elected on these policies and you're very explicit, as you said, about what policies you're going to implement. And then tragically, we have this George Floyd murder. We seem to have this kind of awakening across the country in ways that we hadn't previously about. And we there out of that comes the defund the police movement. And it seems like 
the political winds should kind of be at your back at that point, because this you're kind of like, this is exactly what I was talking about, that this has existed for decades, for hundreds of years in our system, and I'm trying to solve the root causes of this problem. Did you feel like that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, that that window, that, I mean, not to say we didn't have our detractors, and, you know, they, they started the recall effort against me the week I was sworn in, but it didn't really pick up momentum, and they didn't formally begin gathering signatures until after uh, I'd been in office for a full year. And so that that first year, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we definitely had uh, a lot of political momentum and a lot of political space. Um, you know, the New York Times published an op-ed I wrote about police accountability. We had, um, you know, even people, funny, like even people like uh, Brooke Jenkins, who's the current DA of San Francisco, who was one of the most vocal uh, parts and faces of, was a, was a paid spokesperson for the recall and then appointed as the new DA by the mayor. She was sending me emails saying, I'm so proud to work for you and your leadership on these issues. And I mean, you know, everybody, even even the haters were sort of, they they knew where the political momentum was and they wanted to even if even if they were opportunistic they wanted to pretend that they were on you know on our side other local elected officials labor unions everybody wanted a piece of me and 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 the movement that i was you know an elected representative of in that moment yeah and so i'm kind of like that's not only happening you are one of the faces of that movement but you talk about whether it was like larry krasner in philadelphia or kim fox in chicago or um in la you had george gascon and uh now you like pamela price and uh andrew warren and, and uh pamela price in oakland and uh andrew warren down in, in florida we have rachel rollins here in boston and it seemed like this was as you said everyone kind of had to get on board with this moment Obviously, now you, you look back, you've been recalled. George Gascon um, has faced two recall elections. Pamela Price uh, was... Uh, uh, recall attempts. Neither one of them qualified right. for the ballot, but they did try and spend tens of millions of dollars trying to get him on a, on a ballot for a recall, but they couldn't get the signatures. Sure. That, that's a good clarification. But I mean, uh, what I'm trying to get is like Andrew Warren, DeSantis tried to remove him in Florida. Rachel Rollins obviously had to resign here in Boston as the you know, U.S. attorney. Larry Krasner was trying to be the Pennsylvania legislature, tried to impeach him. And so where how do you how do you explain like 2020? You have all of these political headwinds, even the people that are against you are sending you emails, trying to write about you, get pictures taken with you. To two years later, you and all of these other progressive prosecutors are either being recalled or attempted to be recalled or impeached or removed or all of these sorts of things. What happened? So that's, you know, that's that's definitely the narrative that's out there in the press that you've summarized. And, and all the examples you pointed to are, you know, they're they're real examples of real situation. But um, I think that the narrative and those examples, which are which are top of mind for all of us, largely because of how much press attention they get are not actually that representative of what's happening across the board. What's, what's happening across the board is that progressive prosecutors are overwhelmingly being reelected for second terms and that voters who elect them are overwhelmingly continuing to support the individuals and the policies those individuals advocate for. What, what we're seeing instead and, and what has come to kind of dominate the narrative is a reaction, not from the voters who elected these folks, but rather from the local elites or statewide officials or sometimes federal officials who are representing very different constituencies and who are 
actively undermining the power of progressive prosecutors to do what they told voters they were going to do and what voters want them to do. So if you look at, for example, Eric Grasner, you picked that as an example. Yes, he was impeached by a Republican-controlled state house. The court that reviewed the impeachment process found that they had done so illegally because there was no actual basis for the recall. And the state Senate never even held a trial on the recall because of the way the court ruled. Um, more significantly, just to give you a sense of what a load of cockamamie this whole impeachment process against Krasner was. Again, wh whatever you think of him, I mean, Ricky may hate Krasner and his politics, that's fine. But I know Ricky well enough, not very well, Ricky, but I know Ricky well enough that, no, he's someone who believes in the integrity of democratic process and that we shouldn't just have pure, blatant, partisan shenanigans. Well, guess what? If the Republican-controlled Pennsylvania House was so concerned about the integrity and the functioning of district attorney's offices at the local level in the state of Pennsylvania, then answer me this, Ricky. Why did they impeach Larry Krasner without any grounds, according to a court, and totally ignore a district attorney who was at that very time elected to office in the state of Pennsylvania and who um, was being investigated and prosecuted for rape, a guy named Jeffrey Thomas, the district attorney of Somerset County, Pennsylvania, who was being accused of raping somebody while he was the elected district attorney, credible enough allegations that he was being prosecuted for it, and somehow the Republican House of Pennsylvania did not think it was worth impeaching him, but they did think it was worth impeaching Larry Krasner. I mean, it is preposterous. Uh, Ron DeSantis summarily removed Andrew Warren and Monique Morrell from office. That's not democratic. You don't need to like Monique Morrell. You don't need to like Andrew Warren. But they were presiding over jurisdictions where crime rates were trending in the right direction. The red jurisdictions in Florida, just like in California, have higher violent crime rates. This is not about data or evidence. This is about pure partisan politics. And it's happening from the top down. It's happening from the state legislature, from the governor. It's happening from the attorney general or from the the um, the you know, the mayor. It's not happening from the voters who elect these folks. This is, I think, at a high level, in large part, a reflection of the very real and well-documented divide in this country between the more conservative rural jurisdictions and the more progressive urban jurisdictions. We see the progressive prosecution movement winning in urban areas. And we see the, even in democratic states like California, where have you, we see the pushback primarily being effective when it's empowered or led by people elected from more conservative jurisdictions, like Ron DeSantis going into Orlando and Tampa and summarily removing uh, elected officials, like a uh, conservative Republican House in Pennsylvania trying to impeach Larry Krasner, who represents the urban heartland of the state. That's the trend we see across the country. And just to make one final point here about just to make clear that even in places where you might say, as a counterpoint, the, um, you know, the, the recall against me, um, you know, was the same voters that elected me. And so isn't that a counterpoint? Not really. Let me tell you why. Because I was elected in 2019 with 85,000 votes. That's um, just 35 percent of the voters put me as their first choice. Fast forward two and a half years. Totally different context not running against anybody, not using ranked choice voting. Uh, in San Francisco recalls, voters don't even get to choose who it is that replaces the person recalled, the mayor picks. So they're not even thinking like, do I want Biden or do I want Trump? 
they're just thinking Biden. I don't like the guy. Get yeah. rid of him. Right? Yeah. That. I mean, whatever you think about Biden, he would not survive that kind of a vote today. He wouldn't have survived it on day one in office. Yeah. Most elected officials wouldn't survive a straight up or down vote because most elected officials don't poll above 50 percent. They win because voters have to pick between two people or three people they don't like any of. And they go with the one they dislike the least. OK, yeah. well, guess what? In San Francisco, the recall, and this wasn't an accident, the recall gave voters a chance to say, we're unhappy with local government. And this is the guy who's on the ballot. And so 55% of the people voted me out of office. Well, that sounds like a big margin. But actually, I had 45% of the vote, 100,000 votes saying, no, let him finish his term. That's 3% more than I had, including second and third choice votes. That's 10% more than I had to get elected just two and a half years earlier. So if anything, our base of support was growing, even in the face of COVID-19, even in the face of a $10 million uh, recall campaign, even in the face of uh, a mayor and a city hall that absolutely refused to work with me, a police department that just stopped working, literally just stopped doing their job. Um, even despite those attacks, we increased our support by 10% from 2019 to 2022. I think I think you did a great job of uh, quickly highlighting the absurdity of California's recall process. Um, the I, I I'm maybe just to to double down on on the points that that you're bringing up here. The what was were there any takeaways from you in terms of you know you, you've been able to demonstrate that violent crime didn't really change during your uh, during your tenure that in general, like a lot of the major statistics that we look at from a crime perspective didn't get worse even despite the pandemic and despite a lot of um, other, you know, myriad of factors that were making that particular time extremely tumultuous. And yet, at least nationally, the narrative or the perception is that San Francisco, you know, is this, you know, squalor of a place to live kind of thing. And, and, and I think obviously you did a good job of uh, highlighting that, that this recollection gave voters a vehicle to put that blame on you. But I guess, is there a part of what happened during that recall election uh, sort of highlighting this uh, potential perception issue that progressive um prosecutors, of course, but even just those who are sort of championing these progressive policies have with regard to, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess safety. Well, look, the, the, the reality is that the, the hallmark of the progressive prosecutor movement is a desire to focus on serious and violent crimes. It's the su supposedly tough on crime folks that are wasting limited law enforcement resources, prosecuting people for crimes of poverty. So you want to look at data. Let's look at data from the two and a half years that I was in office. You want to talk about public safety. I agree there's a big divide between the data and the perception. And we should talk about why that exists, because it's driven by Fox News and The New York Post, um, if we're honest. Right. It's not driven by actual facts on the ground. I was in office about two and a half years from 2020 through the middle of 2022. If you look at the San Francisco Police Department crime dashboard and you pull I'm looking at their numbers right now, if you pull um all of the data for reported crime. This is not the DA's office. This is crime reported through 911 to the San Francisco Police Department during my two and a half years. And you compare it to the two and a half years prior to when I was in office. Okay. Um, 
And again, COVID was an X factor. I'm not taking credit or necessarily, you know, blame, right? That changed a lot of things about crime trends. But I was in office two and a half years. During that time period, there was a 19.35% decrease in reported violent crime. That's historic. That's historic. I mean, it's a massive 48% decline in reported rape, a 26% decline in reported robbery, a 9% decline in reported assault, a 62% decline in reported human trafficking. So you say, oh, well, what about the Walgreens videos? But that's because in any article you read says, oh, but he was recalled in the context of rising property crime. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at property crime statistics for a second. Overall, reported uh, uh, property crime uh, down by about 20% as well. Okay. Uh, burglaries uh, went up. That's one category that went up. Um, larceny theft, which includes auto burglaries and shoplifting, the things we have these viral videos of, that's down 31.6% during my tenure compared to prior years. So what we had was a, a cherry picking of viral videos or of individual subcategories of crime over sub periods of time to suggest that crime was rising. Crime was not rising under my administration. If you look at the time I was in office and you compare it to any period in San Francisco history, we were at or near historic lows for both violent and nonviolent crime. Now, you don't need to give me credit. You can say that was the COVID pandemic. Okay, but why during a time when overall crime fell 20%, did we for the first time in San Francisco history decide we should recall the district attorney? It didn't have to do with public safety. It just didn't. It had to do with other things, with narrative, with power graph, with perception. Why is it that people feel unsafe at a time when crime is at historic lows? I have some hypotheses. I think the news media plays a role. I think the Republican Party plays a role. I think, frankly, in a place like San Francisco, the corporate conservative Democrats play a role. Um, right? This is about it, this is about power. It's not about policy or or safety. The police union did not want to see members uh, of of the police department get prosecuted for crimes, no matter how egregious their conduct. And so let's look at let's look at clearance rates for a second. You want to talk about the disconnect between people feeling safe and what reported crime is? I want to just compare for you. Again, this is San Francisco Police Department data from their crime dashboard. Anybody listening can go look it up. It's on the inter interwebs, as they say, right? Go look it up. Um, don't take my word for it. I'm looking at their own data. If you look at their clearance rate through the first half of 2022, right? The rate with which the police solved reported crimes, according to their own statistics. And you compare that clearance rate with the rate at which they were clearing crimes in that same time period in 2019, right? Before I was in office, right? So first half of the year, 2019, compared with first half of the year, 2022. Police clearance rates, the percentage of crimes they solved decreased for rape by 42%, decreased for robbery by 41%, decreased for assault by 18%, decreased for human trafficking by 53%, decreased for burglary by 47%, decreased for car theft by 29%, decreased for arson by 55%, decreased for larceny theft by 48%. Those are all massive double-digit declines. And you know the craziest part, Ricky? Remember what I just told you a minute ago about the declining rate of reported crimes? That means there were many, many fewer crimes for police to respond to with the same resources because they never got defunded. The mayor gave them more and more money every year. So how is it that with the same resource, more resources, but a dramatic decrease in reported crime, 
police are solving these reported crimes at rates. And look, it's not like they were doing a good job in 2019. Let me be clear. By the time we get to 2022, larceny thefts, those viral shoplifting videos that get reported are being solved by police at a rate of 2.6%. That means if you commit a crime in San Francisco and it gets reported to the police of shoplifting or auto burglary, there was only a 2.6% chance that you were going to get arrested. So you want to talk about being tough on crime? I don't care who your DA is. When 98% of people are getting away with it because police don't respond or don't have the resources, right, or don't make it a priority or whatever the reason, right, we could talk about why those numbers are so low. But the fact that they were fully 50% lower in 2022 than they were in 2019, that's politics. That's politics. Totally agree. And and I I mean, when I when you look at it, obviously, when you don't have the data to support um, the claims, right, that that crime is getting out of control in in cities that are run by progressives. You you turn to sort of the intuitive understanding. And so I, I guess this is more of a question of like, how if or how how do progressives get broader support in face of the sort of like the intuitive, well, they, you know, they're not prosecuting low level offenses and that's leading to crime, whether, you know, perceived or real. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not real. I mean, the average murder rate in Trump voting and Biden voting states, the average murder rate in Trump voting states is, is 8.8 and the average in Biden voting states is 6.2. I mean, that's a significant, that's a 25% difference. Oklahoma City is one of the cities with the with the highest violent crime rates in the country. They've got a deep red electorate. They've got a deep red prosecutor. They've got the death penalty. Um, you know, it's it just the data and the evidence. You come to it. Look, I'm talking to you from Berkeley Law School. You talk to scholars. You talk to academics. You talk to people whose life is spreadsheets and and evidence and empirical research. And there's just a massive disconnect with what the discourse in the public square is and the policies that are being advanced by elected officials. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just not even an open question. We know that even in the state of California, uh, forget the state level analysis, um, you know, in the, in, in, at the state of California, if you look at the most conservative counties with the most tough on crime sheriffs and prosecutors, they have not only the highest crime trend, highest crime rates, but they have the highest uh, increase in violent crime over the last several years. Right during COVID, during my administration, the the, the um, murder rate in the 25 states that voted for Donald Trump has exceeded the murder rate in the 25 states that voted for Joe Biden in every single year from 2000 to 2020. It's not a one-off. It's not an anomaly, it, it, and and it's gotten worse over that time period. Right during that time, the red state murder gap has widened from a low of nine percent more murders per capita in red states in 2003-2004 to 44% more murders per capita in red states in 2019. So the idea that we are focusing on recalling reformers in progressive jurisdictions is literally the definition of insanity. Larry Krasner this year presided over the single greatest drop in homicide rates in Pennsylvania state history in any major jurisdiction. Why are they trying to impeach him? He won re-election with two-thirds of the vote. Like, it is crazy. It is dishonest. It is absolutely, like, invented fear by people who are in bed with the police union. 
by people who recognize it as a powerful way for the Republican Party to hold on to its stranglehold on American politics, despite significantly uh, underperforming in elections, if you look at a uh, you know, vote-for-vote basis. Um, that's what this is about. I mean, look, if blue state murder rates were as high as red state murder rates, then what we would have seen over the last 20 years is 45,000 more murders than we saw. Thank God. Thank God for blue state politics, preventing all those excess murders that people suffering through Republican-controlled red state politics have. I mean, 45,000 human lives. You want to talk about caring about victim services? You want to talk about caring about victims of crime? We saved 45,000 human lives in blue states because we don't follow the lead of red states with the death penalty, with lock them up and throw away the key policies, with underfunding diversion programs, alternatives to incarceration, reentry programming. And look, we have a long way to go in blue states. But that's the divide. And that's what the data shows. So you tell me why it is that Fox News, the New York Post, the Daily Mirror, Breitbart, why is it that they want to insist to their viewers and readers that places like San Francisco, which is one of the safest cities in the world when it comes to violent crime, is so dangerous that people shouldn't visit it? Why is that? What does that do for them? I mean, think about it. It's not that complicated. It plays a critical role in justifying and legitimizing the failures of red states that have the highest poverty rates, the lowest high school graduation rates, the highest murder rates. How do they justify that? They justify it by holding out examples of places like San Francisco and only showing viewers in Oklahoma the Tenderloin, not showing them the Sunset or Noe Valley or the, the Marina or not showing them the data about what actually happened. They show them a video of, of scary crime. Sure, you could have that video from any city in America, but they picked San Francisco for a very important local reason. Yeah, you, you came prepared. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a fourth slide. I know this is this is what you do, so it's not a surprise that you're so well-versed at these things. I know you, we got to let you go, and you've been more than generous with your time. But So you joined, you are really the founding director of uh, Cal Berkeley's Criminal Justice uh, Center. It just announced this spring, and I think you're just starting this fall. You wrote a, uh, an article in over the summer explaining kind of why you were taking a step back from electoral politics, you know, focus on your family and some of these issues. Uh, and then just last week, a documentary about your life came out uh, that's called Beyond Bars. It's a it's a movement, not a moment. Uh, so can you just kind of talk about where where you are? Obviously, you're still passionate. You're still young. Uh, just talk, talk about kind of where you, you feel like you are in your career right now. You know, I think that um, my whole career has really been defined by that passion you just mentioned. And, you know, hopefully it, it comes through in the way that I talk about these issues. I care about the issues. I care about safety. I care about justice. I care about doing a better job than this country is doing right now in blue or red states, uh, in blue or red jurisdictions. And, um, you know, I have always kind of followed that passion and I've tried to plug my energy and my perspective and experience into different ways to make a difference and to impact the people around me, the communities that I call home. So, uh, you know, there was a time when that meant being public defender. There was a time when that meant running for district attorney. Uh, right now, I'm thrilled to be at the University of California, Berkeley Law School. And uh, I think this is a really important chapter in my life and my career. I think it's an opportunity for me to work with future leaders and, and, and judges and advocates. It's an opportunity for me to do some of the longer term infrastructure work that I think is necessary if we're going to implement policies that actually make us safer and make our system fairer. 
And so, uh, you know, for now, this is exactly where I want to be. I can't predict the future. Uh, I can't tell you what the next chapter of my life will be, but um, life is an adventure. And when you're passionate about the things you do, when you find ways to surround yourself by people who you can learn from, people who you can mentor, uh, people who need your services, um, then, you know, you, you're always going to find meaning. You're always going to be happy and be fulfilled. And I've been really lucky that wherever wherever I've gone, uh, I've been able to find that learning curve uh, and that opportunity to make an impact. And I, I hope that is true for a long time at Berkeley. And if at some point down the road, years in the future, there are other opportunities where I think I can make a bigger impact or learn more, then I look forward to those challenges. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully said and something that I think we all probably wish for everyone to have chances to be fulfilled and to make a difference. And so uh, I wish you the best of luck in, in your pursuits. Again, thank you so much for your time, uh, your expertise, your experience, your passion. Uh, we've we've really appreciated this. And I think you've left Ricky and I with a lot to think about and a lot to talk about. Right, well, hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. I want to just say two things before I, I go to my next meeting here. First of all, Brendan, you look just like one of my former investigators from the uh, San Francisco Public Defender. So, I, you know, maybe you got me to open up a little bit more than I planned on because, like, you know, this was somebody I was in the trenches with. We go out to, you know, crime scenes together, you know, prepare testimony for trial, like really in it. And uh, you got kind of a similar uh, similar vibe and, and demeanor to him. So I appreciate that. Second thing, I don't know if you do this, but, you know, if, if your listeners want to see, you know, links to all the data that I was talking about or whatever, shoot me an email if you want that, if you can't find the stuff I was giving you. Um, you know, it comes from different sources, but it, it's all verifiable. I don't want people to take my word for it. I want you to be able to look, see for yourself, slice and dice the numbers any way you want it. And progressive prosecutors are the ones that are making us the safest. We appreciate that. All right, uh, Chase, thank, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good one. Wow, that was... Uh... Bad. Speechless. I'm lucky I, guys, Ricky. We are I'm lucky very, people. Very, very lucky. That was uh in, incredible. Um I I mean it is just beyond um kind of the way with words that he has. Obviously, that's sort of the mastery of the facts and data um that that really support a lot of you know what he's saying. Um is yeah, it's just impressive um in classic fashion i think he came he came away thinking that i'm on the i'm on the other side of the disagreement <laughs> the conservative one out of the two of us but i think i think you know credit to us at least we we try and uh um mix it up out here but anyways yeah what 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 did you think there's a lot to think about there's a lot to digest i i I think we can do a whole other episode really just just the talking about what he did we'll try to limit ourselves because he he said i think everything that people really need to hear i think the biggest thing i'm taking away is the narrative and while i was aware of that before he really expertly laid out why the narrative exists why the narrative is wrong and who the narrative benefits. And I think he was fair in saying it's not only the conservative Republicans that it benefits, but it's the conservative Democrats that it benefits too. And while if you look at his recall, and you and I talked about this, you know, the funding, while it's kind of a Democratic face on it, there's Republicans that are funding it, but there are a lot of conservative Democrats kind of like as you said, you, your first question was like this establishment 
the, the establishment Democrats are the ones that are behind like his recall and a lot of the, the uh, you know, the, the attacks on progressive prosecution throughout the country. But I will say, so one question he was, I, I feel like I could have talked to him for hours. That was, I, there was so much time. And I know both you and I were like, ah, oh, we have more things that we have to ask. And he was more than generous with his time, but I, I wanted to this. So in September, the San Francisco Chronicle uh, sent out this poll and then, then published it. And they said it was an, it was a national poll. And they asked if uh, 16 major cities throughout the United States, do you think they're safe to visit? And San Francisco, only 52% of, of Americans said that it was safe to visit, which was an 18% drop off from 2006, in, which was the second largest drop off in the country. Do you know what city had the largest drop off as not being safe? New York. Chicago. Um, not a surprise, right? And it's the same, the same narrative kind of exists about Chicago that it does about San Francisco. But it's not only, I think what he was pointing to more was these national, he talked about Fox News and the New York Post and all totally fair. And I think that would explain the discrepancy in like the narrative versus the reality nationally about San Francisco. But the San Francisco Chronicle also pointed to a 2022 survey and it said that San Franciscans felt less safe in 2022 than any time since 1996. And in another poll that the San Francisco Standard point out, put out, uh, seven out of 10 respondents, 70% said, said they felt less safe than in 2019. But that's in contrast to, as Chesa was saying, a typical San Franciscan is less likely to be a victim of violent crime than in 2006. Um, the violent crime rate in 2022 was uh, lower than in Houston, Dallas, Seattle, New Orleans, all these other cities that people that they're thinking is, is are more safe. And so it's, you asked them this, and I think it's very difficult because the numbers just don't back the perception, but the perception is not just nationally. It, it exists in San Francisco too. And while he provided a fair amount of excuses for why he got recalled, ultimately the voters did recall him for, for there are plenty of external factors for that. And I, I give him all of those. But the voters did recall him. So I think that perception exists. Now, he would contend that the perception's wrong, and I don't disagree with him, but that's a hard thing to overcome. Yeah, and I think that was, um, and I, as my run questions don't tend to uh, get at the heart of what I'm what I'm trying to ask, but I, that that was it, really. Like, how how do we change the perception? Because the at the same time that I see you know, a video of a kid looting a target or something. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but there are how many million people in San Francisco? You're showing me this one kid. Like what, to me, that doesn't mean anything, but show that video to people who are predisposed to believing already that, hey, San Francisco is less safe. And then it reaffirms exactly what they think already. And then add to that the narrative that a progressive DA or pro progressive prosecutor is not interested in these types of crimes. And that fuels, right, this perception. And I think he did a great job of saying, well, yeah, that could be the perception, but here's all the information on all the data you need to know that that's not reality. And it's like, I'm with you. Um, you don't need to you don't need to convince me of that but there, yeah, right. <laughs> there, but there are enough people out there that are not convinced and that this very much fits into their intuition intuitive understanding of how things work and so the I think the scary thing for me and I, you know as we like to try and 
think about these through lines is that like when you attempt a radical shift in policy, if you don't, if you're not able to get that public perception to feel like, hey, this is working, let's double down, let's figure out how to get this to work better um, by, you know, or, you know, plan for that long term, that often the reaction is this like, okay, let's, let's go the opposite way and try and double down on what we've done in the past, even if historically we have the data that says, hey, that doesn't really work that well either. Yeah, this is kind of a loose connection, but I was talking about this yesterday where the reason that like gay marriage was first tried in the courts here in Massachusetts and the court said that gay marriage was legal through the Massachusetts state constitution. The reason the I was attending this panel and they were saying that they did it here in Massachusetts as opposed to a state like California, which is you know just as kind of objectively blue as Massachusetts is because they knew that it would be several years before you could get it on the ballot in Massachusetts. Like it would have to go through the state legislature in two consecutive sessions. And then after that, you have to get the signatures to get it on the ballot. And by the time that all happened, people would be like, oh, like gay marriage really isn't affecting my life at all. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's not the way, it's not the end of the world here. But in California, if it had passed through the courts in California, they could have had it on the ballot almost immediately in the next next election. And people all inflamed that the courts gave this right that they don't think exists, could have immediately put something in the constitution saying gay marriage is legal. You know what I mean? And like that would have actually set the movement back a lot of ways. So it's it's interesting that obviously this is, as he both he and I pointed out, this progressive prosecution movement is happening all over the country. But the fact that maybe California was the leading, like Jason was really one of the main faces of this movement. And the fact that he's elected and then within three years is recalled is I think objectively a step backward for the movement, even if as he's saying, the movement is still working across the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I almost feel a little bad that we got kind of bogged down in, in the, in the politics of the movement and weren't able to kind of dive into to some of the kind of the core tenets, which are like a lot of the ways that we've decided to attack the crime and basically to, to use our criminal justice system ostensibly for the betterment of society has in these kind of uh, perpetual feedback loops is actually like made things worse. And of course, you know, you don't, don't have to do much Googling to see that we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We have the, uh, you know, and then on top of that, the prison population does not reflect the overall population in it in, in the slightest. And so, you know, add on the racial components and there are all kinds of problems with our justice system and so many of the things that he put forward and that other progressive prosecutors are kind of you know, either mimicking or finding their own flavors of um, really fly in the face of how we think about the justice system. I think one of the huge through lines that in in reading about his work and and just sort of thinking about what's going on here and and how to how I understand it in like the historical context. And and I'm curious, as I always am, I, I love to to try these long-winded theories out on you but <laughs> the to me well yeah I mean where do I start even I guess the the idea of public safety being at the core of a lot of 
politics is is very or sort of political movements is not really the right word but it is like the it's the the it, it's a big driver in terms of how you get people out to vote is by basically framing the other party as as making you unsafe and i think one of the things that is really interesting to me and i can think about it in terms of what what we're doing here in the united states but what we also kind of support abroad is that we are comfortable policing or in order not to or in order to kind of protect our rights and our liberty and our liberties we are comfortable sort of infringing on or or over policing the rights and liberties of others either within the united states you talk about poor marginalized minority communities right like you know the willie horton example is a, is a great one right because it's like well you know dukakis let this guy out on on furlough i don't think dukakis had anything he is moderate democrat it doesn't matter right but he he then committed these crimes and immediately it's like well because he was released if he hadn't been released he wouldn't have committed these crimes well what what's the broader problem there it's like well what about all of the other people who were able to take advantage of these furlough programs and be released and not commit any crimes and you know maybe reintegrate into society better right like those those examples are not anywhere to be found but their liberty once you re remove this furlough program is what is is the cost of our sense of security and you can argue well you know criminals are criminals they don't deserve anything but if we think about how we need to sort of better our society i think that's an area that we have to come to terms with and and i think about this you know with our response to terrorism in the past right patriot act and bombing in, in afghanistan iraq and things like that right like we were comfortable with the notion that hey civilians in these places are going to die but it's going to make us safer and we were able to sort of sign off on that and that this i think this is kind of at the core of like how, will we ever get to a point where we're saying okay i will have to accept that in certain areas like you know, we won't have the police stopping and frisking. And so there may be, you know, some guys who may have been stopped previously won't be stopped, but the 90% of people who get stopped and who are uh, basically harassed for no reason, they have an improvement in their quality of life. Like, how do we, I don't know, does it, are we, are, am, I, am I making any sense? Well, I would argue that this is the same argument I make about guns all the time, Ricky. But I, uh, I would say that, right. But one is like just a freedom of being like a human being without being harassed. The other is a freedom to own a gun, which I don't think is the same thing. But I'll let you carry on. Well, you would argue those are the Second and Fourth Amendments, but okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let that go. Uh, but I think one thing that's interesting to me is that we talk about all of this all the time. Is that it's not really a uh, straight line spectrum for political for politics. It's really a circle. And what I think is interesting with what Chase was saying is that I think conservative Democrats 
and moderate Republicans are very much aligned on crime. That's where like we saw the 90s crime bills were passed, like the tough on crime were with generally a, a Republican Congress and a Democratic uh, executive administration. And those are the people that have been in power for a long time. But I think if you're looking towards where Chase is on the progressive side, or if you're looking where like libertarians are on the right-hand side, they're saying exactly what you're saying is that we need to be addressing root causes of issues and we need to preserving people's liberty at the, at you know, that should be one of our highest goals. And as far as I know, I wish we could got, got into this too. Like Chase is not saying that like, jail shouldn't exist. You know, I mean, he's, he was saying that like what we should be training all of our resources on is stopping violent crimes and we should stop prosecuting these like low level, like he, as he said, like crimes of poverty, whether it's like vagrancy or loitering or, you know, alcoholism or whatever, like whatever, like the, these kind of low level things. And libertarians, my only problem with that is that I don't think they should be laws at all. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't like not prosecuting laws, but I just don't, I don't know why we're criminalizing poverty. So like, that's where the part where he's clearly on a different end of like the we're probably voting for different candidates largely but like on criminal justice i think he and i are probably very much aligned is that in it's exactly what you were saying is that we need to be balancing people's freedom and why do we never talk about that and i think that's totally fair i i don't know that he has a great answer for how do you shift the narrative because the narrative seems so entrenched but i guess all you can do is continue to try to do the work and then provide data showing that it works. Yeah. I think, and maybe, maybe the last thing I'll say on, on your comment is that we're always clamoring for more consensus here, particularly in the middle, but I feel like <laughs> all of our examples of real consensus over the last 20 some odd years are uh, <laughs> not necessarily the best things, uh, crime bill and Iraq war and whatnot. But again, why why is that? Like those are the people that have been in power, and these are the policies that have kept them in power. And I mean, if you really want to get into it, whether it's deep state or like the donors or who are the people funding and lobbying, right? It's all for the same causes, and it help it helps people that are still in power. And who does it hurt? People that are either um, disadvantaged socioeconomically or marginalized for any number of reasons, racially, sexually, religious, whatever, whatever. And so these policies always, I think, are difficult because they challenge the status quo. They challenge people in power and that's what makes Chase's example, I think, so powerful. And I really loved what he said that he didn't necessarily expect to win. It's kind of a lot of what you see of uh, kind of outside candidates that are saying, I just want my ideas to be out there. And if, if I keep getting my ideas out there, sooner or later, people are going to see the value of them. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's definitely right. Well, Really a pleasure. Uh, if you're a longtime listener, we continue to appreciate you. If you are a first-time listener, we feel very proud that we are able to get people like uh, Chase Boudin to the program, and we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you uh, go and find some other episodes that you enjoy, because we've had a, a really a, a phenomenal run of guests recently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Till next time, buddy. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day 
No agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though we did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Learn the hard way, but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line. We seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share. Opinions we share, loud American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, cause though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics. Trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz, oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. Uh, uh.